we continue our study in the book of Luke this morning, in Luke chapter 18. You can find that if you want to use the the Bible that's in your chair or pew on page 877. Should have a handout that we will refer to a few times, but the outline itself is there in the bulletin, which we'll be following. Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have. And distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. That's the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, bless us to understand your Word, to see the glory of Jesus, and to see the treasure that Jesus is, worth leaving everything to have him. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this little... Skit will be familiar and maybe a reminder for some of those who are as old as I am. But the older comedian Jack Benny had a few skits that he would do on the radio. One of my favorite one, he's walking down an alley, lonely alley. This guy comes out from an open doorway and he says... And, of course, Jack Benny's known as the tightest of tightwads, right? That's, that's his reputation. So the guy comes down and says, Hey, your money or your life? Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> Wasn't sure which to do, you know. Maybe, maybe he would give his life because he, his money is so precious. It's interesting uh, that Jesus is addressing this ruler in similar terms, but... A very different end is in view. He's basically saying here, do you want your money or do you want eternal life? 
Or you want your money or do you want to follow me? What will it be? Money or me? And this raises the question uh, of today's sermon title. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? We've been asking the question, what would compel someone to follow Jesus? What makes someone leave everything for him? That's a theme of our sermon series. And here we're asking again, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And bound up in that question is that of eternal life, because this whole passage is framed by those words. The beginning question is, what might I do to inherit eternal life? And the last thing in the, in the passage is, you will have eternal life. It's what he promises in the end. So it marks the beginning and the end of the passage. And dotted throughout the passage are phrases like treasure in heaven and entering the kingdom of God and being saved. So the answer to who enters the kingdom of God or who will have eternal life has everything to do with how they regard their wealth and how they regard Jesus. Is it worth it to follow Jesus is bound up in, will you have eternal life or not? So as I say in this first point, for some, the answer is no. For some, the answer is no. He is not worth it. And so this rich ruler... Jesus knows that he is flippant in his use of the word good, right? This is flattery. It's just an empty word for the ruler. It's really manipulation. It's kind of a show. In the ruler's social setting, it goes like this. I call you good. You tell me something good. That's the way this works. There's no record at this point of any rabbi ever calling another rabbi good. It isn't done. And it's interesting. He doesn't think Jesus is so great when Jesus calls him to follow him, doesn't he? (laughs) Good seems to have just vanished at that point. Not so good. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to give up everything for you. Well, how good is he? He doesn't think God is good, does he? He's not in awe of God's goodness, God's honor and authority. He thinks his wealth is good. That's what he thinks is good. He does not need God. He doesn't want God as the treasure of his life. Oh, he wants eternal life or what he thinks is eternal life, but he doesn't even want God. Think of it comes asking about eternal life and when challenged to give himself up to God, he says, no. (laughs) What eternal life do you want? What do you think eternal life is if it's not having God? He likes his self-exalting, self-serving life. And so he doesn't value God above all else. He trashes God as he counts his money. He despises fellowship with God because of his fellowship with money. That's his issue. And so Jesus calls him out on using this word good. And then he lays before him the commandments. And really, in effect, what he's saying is, you know, the commandments 
You know the word of God. Walk in love. Be faithful to others. Give yourself to others. Give what you have to others. That's the basic word of the Old Testament. Jesus summarized it at one point. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole Old Testament. That's everything. Care for others. Honor them. You see, he had never gotten to the spirit of the commandments, though he says he keeps them. He never got to love. Some kind of outward show, some kind of shallow understanding of them. But as Paul and Jesus summarize these same commandments that are listed in two different places with Paul and Jesus, they summarize them by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so love, even in terms of the Old Testament, is to be ready to give everything. That's the whole of the law. Acts of faithfulness to others. And so for, for Jesus, to keep the commandments would mean obeying them out of a dependence upon God's mercy through sacrifice. And that sacrifice would be meaningless unless it was, was with a contrite and broken heart. That's the beginning of Old Testament religion. A broken heart seeking the mercy of God through sacrifice. That's the context for obedience. Another context for obedience is realizing I have to have my heart renewed in order to obey God. A passage like Deuteronomy 36 where God says, I will circumcise your heart so that you can love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. There was no hope of loving God. There was no hope of loving your neighbor unless you were circumcised. The very uh, sacrament itself is to proclaim the need of a renewed heart. So you see, obedience was out of this context of brokenness and helpless dependence upon God's mercy and brokenness and helpless dependence of God's renewal of one's heart. And then the essence of it is you see many times it lists obeying him. It it says cling to him, hold fast to him, love him. So it's this holistic uh, response to God's mercy and powerful grace to give ourselves up to his will. He's our deliverer. And in the wake of his salvation, his merciful rescue, we give ourselves to his Lordship. And so this was not his life. This was not the way he kept the commandments. He didn't have this heart given up to God, this heart of brokenness. Where was where were his affections? His affections, his heart was dedicated to himself and his stuff. It was dedicated to his privilege, his status, his power. He didn't want God. He didn't want Christ. Wealth was his God and he didn't want to abandon his God. Is it worth it to follow Christ? He says, no, no. This is the sole occasion where Jesus commands someone to sell everything and give it away. Even Zacchaeus, that we'll look to next week, gave half or promised to give half of what he had away. 
And we'll see later in the New Testament, that's not a regular commandment to give everything away. But for him, for this particular man and his particular issues, this was what was necessary. And it was at this particular time where to follow Jesus and be his disciple and do ministry with him meant to leave everything behind. But of course, for each one of us, we must give up our gods that we worship or begin that process because it is a process. There is a sincere beginning to say, Lord, I give up everything to follow you. But then you come upon those gods again and again and again in your life as you dig down to see more and more of your sin and your brokenness throughout the whole of your life. If you back up just a few chapters to chapter 9 in Luke, you'll see how this approach, this proclamation of Jesus goes forth in very similar ways. But it doesn't have this particular aspect of wealth. But in Luke chapter 9 verse 23, right after he foretells his own death, okay, Right after proclaiming his own suffering and death, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And at the end of that chapter, we won't read it. You can see under the heading, the cost of following Jesus. Three people that come waffling about following Jesus. And with each one of them, he tells them that the supreme value of following him, the supreme treasure that Jesus is, that the kingdom is. Is it worth it? The ruler says, no. And of course, you have to ask your question. Is it worth it? Am I given up to this gracious God? Well, for some, as Jesus says, the answer is difficult. And that would be the rich. It's so hard for the rich And it could be rich in money, it could be rich in talent, rich in intellect, rich in status, rich in power. So hard to find your meaning in God when you find such meaning in what you have and what you are. How difficult. The wealthy are so embedded into layers of self-dependency and status and power and comfort and ease and honor. So susceptible to depend upon these things for life. To become accustomed to it. To to depend on it and not even know you do it. It's just the way it is. It's not easy for us Wealthy, For surely you know, among the people of the world, most of us among the most wealthy. So hard for us to cast ourselves on the mercy of God, helpless as the next person. As broken and prostrate, devastated, empty, 
poverty-stricken spiritually as anyone else. It's like a post that's embedded in the dirt, and it was just driven into the dirt, versus one that a big hole is dug and concrete was poured in about six feet deep, and it's in concrete. That's more or less the rich man. That's any of us with the world's privileges and wealth and status and power. We are embedded in the concrete of it. Proverbs in chapter 18 says, interestingly, interestingly, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So the Lord and his power and his, his, his sovereignty, that's his tower. But a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. See the contrast? The righteous man runs to the Lord as his high tower. The wealthy man sees his wealth as his city and he imagines that it has high walls and it can protect him and it can save him and it can keep him. And so he depends upon it. It's hard for a rich man to step outside his walled city. It's far hard for him to quit trusting in his wealth and to entrust himself to God's care. To put himself in God's hands, not money's hands. To trust in a far greater treasure. The wealthy must stop, must swap treasures, swap what they trust in. And Jesus says, and whatever you think about it yourself, Jesus is telling you and me, it is difficult. It is difficult. And probably it's a measure of how blind we are to how wealth affects us that we think it's not so difficult. But he says God can work the miracle of conversion even for a wealthy man. He can work what is an impossible miracle of grace so that those who have wealth will not put their trust in it. Man can't break the spell of wealth, but God can break the spell of wealth, that feeling of security that money gives. There's this sheer impossibility on our own of pulling away from the gravity of wealth in order to embrace God's grace and his kingdom. That's why, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not many, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. So we all have to be humbled We all have to realize that if I am to be delivered, if I'm to be saved, and they cried out, then who can be saved? Because in that world, if you were wealthy, that was an indication of God's favor upon you. It was. It was a sign. Look at God's favor upon this man. Look at all the wealth that he has. And they could misuse Old Testament quotes to support that. 
What, what, what are you telling me the wealthy, it's difficult for them to be saved? Well, who can be saved then? That was really the question. That's why they broadened it out. They didn't just say, well, okay, I understand the wealthy can't be saved. Good for us. We're not wealthy. That wasn't the response. The response was throwing their hands up and saying, well, who can be saved? If these people so visibly, obviously favored of God and it's difficult for them to be saved, well, who can be saved? So in that sense, you see, Jesus is pushing us into the arena to say, nobody is rescued apart from the sovereign God who fixes their hearts upon himself and not what they have. It's impossible. But with God, it is possible. Is it worth it? This rich man says, no. Jesus says the answer is difficult for wealthy people, for people ensconced in this world. But is it worth it? For some, the answer is yes. And enter the disciples. There's a parallel between what Jesus says to the rich man, uh, sell or the wealth, uh, the ruler, sell all that you own and follow me in verse 22. And they say, we have left what is ours and followed you in verse 28. So the command there is in verse 22, and they have followed that command, verse 28. And of course, there is this potential disruption of family relationships that would result from discipleship. And many people in many nations know this. Some of you know this disruption in your own family because of your allegiance to Jesus. But Jesus not only promises eternal life, but he promises and, and notice the phraseology now in Mark and Luke, uh, Mark and Matthew, it's a hundredfold. But Luke uses this receive many times more in this time. And of course, he's speaking of the treasure of the family of God that we receive, even if we lose our own families. The treasure of the people of God and the devoted love that we have for one another. These relational blessings. And we could throw in as well this deep, grateful enjoyment of what one has that one never had before. This gratitude, this enjoyment of what I have that I may be giving much more away than I ever did. And then what I do have, I enjoy in the presence of God with gratitude and I never did before. Life is richer and fuller and satisfied because I've given myself up to God. What we lost in the family, perhaps, and it was their situation, has been replaced many times over in Christ and in the church. And so many pagan converts uh, had to face cruelty in their families who cast them out, but they had this larger, greater family of the people of God. And so... You become a part of this family that Jesus defined at one point where he was speaking. Uh, This is back in chapter 8. And somebody said, your mothers and brothers are outside. And then he said, my mothers and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's the new family. 
the new family of those who give themselves up to God, who give themselves away faithfully to others, the new family of those who dedicate themselves to the poor and the needy and take them in as their own kin and value them as their own family. That's the new family of God. Where we don't separate ourselves from one another, but we stand together and embrace one another and stand together before the grace of God. And if you don't want to be a part of a family like that, then you won't be a part of the family of God. If you don't want to be a part of a family in which the poor are your kin and you embrace them and love them as your own, then you don't want to be a part of the family of God. And it's interesting what comes directly after this passage. He says in verse 31, taking the 12, he said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. He'd been speaking of Jerusalem again and again since chapter 9. And he says, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles, be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and they'll flog him and kill him. And then he'll be raised from the dead. You see, here's Jesus saying, I know a little bit about sacrifice, about giving away everything you have for the sake of others. I know what it is to lose dignity and honor, to be mocked and spat upon. He sacrificed everything and he calls us into that life and it will take some shape in our lives. As I said, it's not going to take this specific shape, but it will take a shape in our lives. As we begin to bear the image of the one who gave away everything for the sake of others. As he says in Matthew 10, a disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. The servant to be like his master. So Jesus models for us the loss for the good of others, the loss of status and humility and even degradation and suffering in order to do good to others. Wouldn't, wouldn't it follow that we will at the very least give up certain comforts, certain time? Certain energies and opportunities and gifts for the sake of others? This is the Jesus that calls you to himself. You and I can make up another Jesus that we might like. Just like this guy wanted to make up another set of commandments that weren't really the ones Jesus was talking about. But this is the Jesus who calls us. This is the Jesus who has bought us with his blood and he's not asking us to do anything that he's not already done for us. And here's an interesting statement when we ask, is Jesus worth it? Here's a kind of question that you might have asked Jesus. Are they worth it? Are these people worth it? And you know his answer For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy of having you, 
He endured the cross. You're infinitely worth it. You're worth everything to Jesus. To suffer shame and mocking and horrible suffering in order that he might have you. And that's why Paul would press into us and say, He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 See, when we see His death for us, when we see the majesty and the glory of His love, it, and the Spirit works within us, and we embrace that glory, we respond with awe and amazement and gratitude, and give ourselves up to this Christ who would die in our place. And this is the beginning of no longer living for ourselves or our wealth or our status or our power or our prestige. But we give ourselves up to this Christ. And so Paul says right there, for the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us. Not our money, not what we want in this world, but the love of Christ. And so... By his grace, we can walk away from all lesser loves and lay our glory and our treasures and our connections and our status and our relations and wealth and prestige at his feet. Oh, Lord, take me and use me. Lord, do with me what you will. And I wanted to end by taking out this sheet that I handed out. So that you can get a more holistic picture of what we're talking about. And you notice I've entitled it, this is the take-home sheet, all right? We're not going to read through it. Work, wealth, and the poor. The first section emphasizes the critical importance of work. You might read this passage and say, well, what, are we all to just abandon our jobs and follow after Jesus? No. As I said, this is a particular thing to a particular man at a particular time. But you read through and you'll see the goodness of work and the, the summary toward the end of that section. We work to earn our own living, to be dependent on no one, to provide for family, to walk properly before outsiders, and to have something to share with anyone else. So we work. What about our wealth? Well, the first section in Timothy talks about contentment, avoiding a desire to be rich, the love of money. Notice the italics, through this craving. So that's that section, contentment, not craving. And then I think the best section in any of Scripture as a balanced way to look at wealth, it says in 1 Timothy six seventeen, not to be haughty, don't set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They're the two negatives. But set it on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That engenders in, in, in gratitude. But here's the positives. To do good, that should be in italics. Rich in good works, generous, ready to share. Storing up a treasure, that which is truly life. You see, this is Paul's application of this matter. This is a life given up that if you have opportunity, don't be haughty, don't set your hope on it, but you must do good and be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. There's the exhortation. And then on the back, 
is a whole section on the poor. I hope you'll read it through. I hope you'll meditate on it, of the importance of our regard for those who are poor. How will it affect us individually? How will this affect us as a church, as leaders of the church? For this is a vital aspect of eternal life. That we show that we are trusting in the Christ who gave himself away lavishly. And we're following him. And in, in the manifestation particular to our circumstance, we're giving ourselves away lavishly. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us. Bless us, O Lord, that we will see the precious love of Christ. We will see what you have done for us. And, O Lord, we'll see that only you can change our hearts. Only you can set our affections on you and not this world, not the things of this world. So that we might use these things to glorify your name, to do good to others, to be tempered in all that we do with our wealth by our call and our, our joy and passion to do good for others as Christ has done good for us. Oh, set us free from that idolatry, Lord, of wealth. Set us free from the death of it. Set us free from the destruction of it. Set us free to serve you faithfully with full and undivided hearts. That you be our treasure, you and you alone, and then the people you call us to serve. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen.